Welcome to Three Song Stories, home of the song story, which we define as stories connected to memories that resurface whenever you hear a song that is attached to that time and place. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. Our guest today is Dr. Wilson Bradshaw, Florida Gulf Coast University President Emeritus. Dr. Bradshaw served as FGCU's third president for a decade, beginning in 2007. During his tenure, FGCU experienced tremendous growth in both size and complexity. Under his leadership, the university's student body grew from about 9,000 in 2007 to about 15,000 when he retired, and the faculty grew by 50% over that time. Also over that decade, diversity increased at the school with African-American enrollment up 300%, Hispanic enrollment up by 280%, and Native American enrollment up by 342%. Dr. Bradshaw also managed the transition to Division I athletics, and the FGCU Eagles have won 54 conference and tournament championships in eight years including the meteoric rise to national visibility when the men's basketball team was the first number 15 seed to make it to the Sweet 16 in NCAA history, gaining the nickname Dunk City because of their explosive success in that tournament. Before coming to FGCU, President Bradshaw served as president at Metropolitan State University in St. Paul, Minnesota for seven years. He was born in Sanford, Florida and raised in West Palm Beach. He earned his Associate of Arts degree from Palm Beach Community Junior College, his bachelor's and master's degrees in psychology from Florida Atlantic University, and then his doctorate in psychobiology from the University of Pittsburgh. He and his wife Joanna now live in St. Augustine, and so we're so pleased that he made time to stop by our studio while he was in town to share with us and you his three song stories. Hey there, President Dr. Wilson. You can call me Brad. (laughs) (laughs) Is Brad your nickname through life? Yes, pretty much uh, from sixth grade on. Okay. Uh, That is one of our questions, but I thought I already knew the answer. Did you ever have any other nicknames that almost stuck? Well, my family, they call me Gil, which is short for my middle name, Gilmore. Oh, wow. Uh, Big Adam Sandler fan? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to get some improv into uh, this for you. Well, actually, the the name came from uh, my aunt, used to listen to the soap operas, I'm told, on the radio, and there was a favorite character that she liked, and his name was Gilmore. Hmm. So that's how I got my middle name. So when you grow up with a name like Wilson Gilmore Bradshaw, uh, there are many opportunities for nicknames. Yeah, I would say. Um, When you were growing up, did you ever figure you'd have a library named after you? Never, ever figured I'd have a library (laughs) named after me. It was uh, such an honor uh, for the Board of Trustees to bestow on me, and... uh, that is just something because libraries, in my opinion, they are very special to universities. The uh, marketplace of ideas, I always consider the library to be the nucleus of the university. I'm sure that has changed if it's not going to change in the near future. Um, so if I ask you to try to flash back to an early musical memory, as, as far back as you go, is there something that pops into your head? Yeah, yeah. Um, one song that I remember very well and brings back some memories of my uh, teenage years, is Hurt So Bad by uh, Little Anthony and the Imperials. Which is on your list. Yes. So we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, where'd you grow up? I grew up, uh, my early years, first through third grade, I was in Sanford, Florida. 
And then Where is that? That is, is that Orlando-y? Uh, it's about a half hour from Orlando. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's very close to Orlando. And then my mom and my dad separated around then, and we moved to West Palm Beach where I had an aunt and an uncle. And so the five kids, there were five of us, we were uh, raised by my mom, my aunt, and my uncle, and everyone else who lived in the neighborhood. <laughs> How would you describe the musical background of that time in childhood? Um, rhythm and blues. Uh, my mom liked some of the early uh, jazz singers, uh, Ella Fitzgerald. Um, and so that's what, I, that's what I grew up listening to. And, of course, rock and roll was just really taking off in the sounds of the 60s. That's what I grew up on. Um, do you remember the first music you owned? Oh, my. Whether it was gifted to you or if you had the means to purchase it. I probably had the means to purchase it because my older sister, Pamela, who's now passed away, uh, we would save our money and we would go to the record shop. And back then, you could actually listen to the record before you purchased it. And I am going to say that my first one was Shop Around Hmm. that I purchased myself. Like a single? Yeah, 45. Hmm. Um, five kids. Five kids. Um, did you? Where were you in the line? Uh, second oldest. So, uh, were you influencing your youngers, and did the older influence you at all in terms of music? I think it was more the uh, older. My older sister Pamela influenced me. She was uh, far more popular um, than I was, and I usually took my uh, cues from her on what was hip, what was cool. Um, was there a lot of music around the house? Did you guys have like a record player that featured prominently or were you listening we, to the radio? No, we listened to the radio, but we had a record player, but we didn't have a lot of records. Um, most, or at least in the earlier years, uh, it was the radio that we listened to. Do you remember what stations? Oh, uh, there was one in Miami, um, WQAM hmm. uh, out of Miami. That was one. And there was a station out of uh, Nashville that you could only pick up the signal in the evening. And I don't remember the call letters, but it played what was in probably called or labeled race music. It was uh, played uh, music by uh, black artists. Hmm. Would have been an that. AM station, I presume, if it was getting here from Nashville. Oh, yeah. Um, it was an AM station. No one listened to uh, FM for a bit. Uh, did you play any musical instruments, or were there any being played around you? I did not play. My sister's boyfriend played the trombone. Uh, I dabbled around with percussion for a bit, but never was in the uh, the band. My sister, Pamela, she was in the marching band, but she was a majorette. When uh, folks would ask me, what I played, I would typically answer, I play the radio, but, <laughs> but um, no, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, any, any more musical instruments throughout your life at all, or is that just something you never delved into? Just something I uh, never dealt with. I uh, probably thought about learning how to play the piano, but I had no um, real motivation and certainly no encouragement to, to do that. If you could learn an instrument instantly, would you choose piano, or would it be something else? I think I would choose trumpet. Hmm. Why? Because... Uh, I can see myself being a Miles Davis type of uh, trumpeter. He's one of my favorite jazz musicians, musicians, and I, uh, I really admire his work. Um, so that would be the instrument. Actually, I would uh, 
I would wish to be Miles Davis, actually. So. Oh, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> so that would be good. Uh, you listen to a lot of Miles Davis? Oh, yeah. yeah. I have some. Uh, I have a lot of Miles Davis on my uh, phone and uh, have it marked on Spotify and Pandora. I like him a lot. You drove down here from St. Augustine. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you listen to music in the car? Oh, well. What I were you li- listening to on the way down? Yeah, I listened to, uh, I was listening to a lot of jazz. Uh, and I listen through my apps on my phone. Uh, I have Apple CarPlay, so it's a piece of cake. And uh, no longer are there any dead spots between St. Augustine and me driving here. So I'm very entertained. And occasionally I put on some news. I was going to say, will that thing, your Apple whatever, play WGCU for you? Oh, yes, it does. In fact, the app is right on my phone. It's one of my... Uh, Front pagers? Yes, it right. is. It is. <laughs> we, we rate. Yes. Yes, you do. Uh, Dr. Right Brad, here. Can, there it is. There hey. it is. Front page. Yep. All right. So, Brad, can you recommend us um, a Miles Davis standard um, for the beginner listener? I think for the beginner listener to really appreciate, uh, you know, real Miles Davis, uh, Bitches Brew. That is just a classic album. And, um, I mean, that's a really good place to start. And then I would go back in time and then forward, but that was really a, a, a real breakout album for him. You ever see him live? No, I didn't. Hmm. Okay, it is now time for your first song, which you already alluded to before. So, um, Hurt So Bad? Yeah. What's the story? Wow. Well, as I said earlier, I think I said I grew up in West Palm Beach, and um, for entertainment, uh, listen to records, but also... Um, it was very common for especially guys to want to form a singing group. And uh, me and my friends, Roy and Steve and Bobby and myself, we thought we uh, would uh, form a group. And uh, we knew we needed to work on our harmonizing. And little Anthony and the Imperial had a song that we all kind of like. It was called Hurt So Bad. So we played that over and over, and um, that was our practice song. And you'd sing it and harmonize. So you're a singer. I'm. Not, I'm not a singer. Uh, I. Uh, we <laughs> had a lot like of. You're a singer. We had a lot of fun, but we had no, absolutely no talent. But it kept us busy and <laughs> occupied for for a bit of time. Did you do have? Did you have coordinated dance moves? No, no, no. No. Was that going to be part of the plan? That was going to be. Oh, absolutely. It was going to be part of the plan. Matching just, suits. Yeah, we. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you have a name? Uh, we didn't have a name uh, officially uh, when we were tossing it around. Um, I recommended Brad and the Bradettes, but it didn't fit very well because these were guys. So the Bradette thing didn't work. So we thought we uh, we put that aside and. Think about it later. Brad, the Brad Juniors. That could could have worked. Where? Uh, so paint a picture for us here. You guys like sitting in a garage singing this or uh, where were you? Various places. Usually in the living room of either – In front uh, of other people? No, no, no. Okay. no. Uh, <laughs> because we never really got it quite right. But either in the living room, there were a couple practice sessions, quote unquote, in bathrooms because the echo uh, somehow made us sound a little bit better. A little bit better. Okay, well, let's listen to this. Do you keep up with Roy, Steve, and Bobby? Oh, no, not for decades. Not for decades? Well, maybe they'll hear this. You never know. This is uh, uh, Dr. Wilson Brad, Bradshaw's first song here on Three Song Stories. Hurt So Bad by Little Anthony and the Imperials from their 1964 album, Going Out of My Head. Please don't go, please don't go. 
When was the last time you listened to that? It's probably been not that long ago because uh, also I will listen to some of the 60s and 70s music uh, on either Spotify or one of my apps. So it hasn't been that long ago, but I would say, and when I say that long ago, <laughs> probably two or three years. Okay. You're like within 20 years. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Which part were you in the singing line? I was, uh, uh, and I use this word very loosely in this case, I was uh, part of the harmonizing group. Roy was the lead singer. He was uh, a little Anthony, as it were. Uh, did any of them go on to actually be in real bands? No, no, no. no. You guys I just think, had no choice, no hope. No, we recognized that uh, there's not going to be a long career there. But again, uh, we had fun. We had fun. How old were you? Um, that was in 1964. So I was in 7th, um, 8th grade, 7th grade. Sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds about yeah. right. So once you got to high school, what was the vibe like musically? Um, we were really moving into um, the psychedelic age kind of in, in, in high schools. And uh, a lot of the British sound was uh, coming in. Soul music was beginning to take off uh, really big. The Motown sound was something I really uh, – I have a lot of Motown on my uh, my phone, listen to that a lot as well. So that was the big thing. And then uh, as I was in 10th, 11th, 12th grade, the, uh, the psychedelic music, uh, Jimi Hendrix came into the fore, and it was just uh, just kind of the breakout – Woodstock era kind of music. Were you embracing all that, listening to it? Was oh, I that... listened to I listened to it all. Um, I, I listened to it all. One thing I didn't listen to, one genre of music was uh, country and western. Just never, it just never pulled me in. Uh, what did you want to be when you grew up during those formative years? Um, I wanted to be, and when I was thinking about it back then, was a scientist. I was really taken with um, especially the uh, uh, dynamics of electricity and electronics. And so that was something I thought I wanted to pursue a career in. But generally science, but I um, spent the summers on special science programs at the schools that I attended. And I kind of like that. And I worked for, during high school, junior high and high school, I worked for a pharmacist in West Palm Beach, uh, Cecil Frederick. He was the only African-American pharmacist in West Palm Beach at the time. And he really was like a father figure to me. And um, along with my mom really encouraged me to um, embrace education as a way to advance myself. So I can never think uh, about a time when I just, that, that I didn't, no, I was going to college. I just knew that was going to happen. It was not that I had to sit down and think about it. It just evolved. Did the pharmacy have more than just a pharmacy, or was it? And my what I'm getting to is there any music playing at that pharmacy? Uh, Sam Cook, the Dr. Frederick, this is known. He liked Sam Cook, and I like Sam Cook too. Uh, and um, so that uh, we have a record player back there, so we would play it. We didn't have. Uh, you know, like a central music system or anything. It was in the African-American community. And um, at first, it was a, just a little pharmacy located in a drugstore. 
And that's where I started working. And the drugstore had a soda fountain, so I was... I was going to ask if there was, you were you a soda jerk? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I was so that. Cool. And uh, I also cleaned up, uh, mopped up and cleaned up the drugstore. And for uh, Dr. Frederick, he was a pharmacist. He had a little cubby thing in the back. I would deliver prescriptions uh, for him. And that's how I earned money. And uh, Dr. Frederick, I guess, was successful enough that he opened his own store in another part of town, and I moved with him. And they had cosmetics. It was sort of like what a, a small CVS, mm-hmm. you know. And, and uh, um, he continued to do prescriptions and things, but he also expanded out to what back in the day were called sundries. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so I worked there. Until uh, probably high school, huh. uh, until I graduated from high school. So what did you study in college? Because I know you got your doctorate in psychobiology. Psychobiology. I, I don't I, know I, what I, that is. I, 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 um, I have a, a bachelor's and master's. My bachelor's is in um, psychology. My master's is in experimental psychology. And my PhD is in psychobiology. So it's like how your brain chemistry affects you. Yes. Okay. Yeah, how how, um, how hormones and neurotransmitters uh, – mediate different types of behaviors. I, I was particularly interested in motivated behaviors. But when I started college, I was at Palm Beach Junior College. You know, I was in pre-med. I mean, that's what I thought I was going to do because I was interested in biology and anatomy and physiology, and those things just interested me. And when I completed my associate's degree at Palm Beach Junior College and went to Florida Atlantic University, I um, met a... Um, <coughs> I had a professor who taught a course in physiological psychology. I had never heard of it, but I was so intrigued with uh, that course and what I'd learned in that course. And the professor, Dr. Singer, seemed to think that I had some some facility for it, and he invited me to work in his lab as a uh, as a junior in uh, in college. And so I learned more about psychobiology and about the brain and brain science, and uh, he encouraged that in me and got me in a summer program uh, first at Florida State as National Science Foundation fellow, and then later on at Princeton, I worked with uh, someone he had gone to graduate school with, uh, Philip Teitelbaum in, in Princeton, and uh, it was the first time I'd really been away from West Palm Beach. It was just, uh, it was quite an experience. And that's where uh, I kind of got the real bug. I said, I, you know, and um, decided that medical school, while it was interesting, it didn't, it didn't grab me like the, this new emerging science. And now it's called neuroscience. Yeah. But yeah. it was, uh, you know, it was emerging and it was very interesting to me. I came across through my job here at the station um, evolutionary biology, yeah. which is relatively new. And yeah. that I'm like, I want to go back in time and be an evolutionary <laughs> biologist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's some really yeah. interesting stuff yeah. that's being uncovered there. I just couldn't believe that uh, a science like that. And it was really the uh, intersection of, of Different sciences, biology, chemistry, uh, anatomy and physiology, and I was just blown away with it. So have all these um, years in science in any way informed informed your bread baking? Um, Still don't understand the chemistry (laughs) of bread baking. I'll tell you, I I completed this uh, home chef course. And I and I've taken a couple of refresher modules since then, and um, still have not uh, 
done well with bread. I got a recipe from you. Have I you think tried couple, it yet? No, I, I haven't. I haven't tried it. It was Cuban bread. and uh, But I will tell you, <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> so you brought some. <laughs> I, I, I toyed, uh, Mike, with the idea of baking some. And I bringing, thought you might. And, and, uh, We're going to eat I, a little Cuban bread here. Keep okay. talking. <laughs> I, uh, I went to the uh, supermarket. And, you know, when you ask for lard, because this is made with lard, yeah, uh, they kind of look at you. I had that same experience. Yeah, they say, well, you sure you don't mean butter? Oh. I had to go to, uh, where's my bread knife? Oh, there it is. I had to go to, like, um, you know, I live on the east side of Fort Myers where the Latino community yeah. is lard. You can find lard there, no problem. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I do have the lard, and I certainly have the ingredients. And that special pan that you use, I bought one of those pans. The curved the, pan? Yeah, the curved pan. Okay. So when I made my, um, in the past when I've made my baguettes, uh, I oh, never so used you've a, tried baguettes? Oh, yeah. They're really hard oh, in the oven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but it, it doesn't um, get hot enough. And um, I, I can't wait to try the Cuban bread. You want a little you, butter on it? Yes, please. You baked this yourself, oh, right? Yeah, I baked this last night. Just oh, for you, Dr. cool. Bradshaw. Very cool. This is proof that the numbers that I sent you, if followed intently, will create bread worth eating. Mmm, that's very good. Richard, would you like to try some? Mm. Absolutely. I'll be right over. Your audience should know that the recipe you gave me was all metric. Grams, uh, man. I know. And it's I, all about I, weight. I wrote him back. I said, <laughs> what's with this metric? <laughs> And I uh, I got the brief lecture on how you need to pr- follow this precisely in the units that you gave them to me in. Well, and you can and make I your can't. Own little changes <laughs> to it, but yeah. But, 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 but mm, that's good. Good job. Thank you. Good job, Mike. We didn't even toast it. Mm. Untoasted Cuban mm. bread. Okay, I'll find this yeah, over here. Sure. The fun so, thing about doing this podcast is we get to do whatever we want. Yeah. Like eat bread. Yeah, okay. That's great. So, um. How long did you teach college before you turned to the dark side? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, um, I started my career as an instructor, as typical. And uh, I started uh, that before I um, completed my dissertation because my wife then was pregnant and I needed insurance. Ah. So I went and presented a paper at some conference and I was approached by, well, I went to the um, job opportunity table, and uh, this ups, this new medical stu- school was starting, and they needed someone to teach anatomy and physiology um, 101. No, well, actually, it was for, for first-year medical students. And I, I applied for it. I gave them my uh, resume, my CV, and I got the job at Wright State University School of Medicine in Dayton, Ohio. I'd uh, never been to Ohio before, but it came with a great benefit. <laughs> and so I, um, so we moved to uh, to Dayton, Fairborn, actually, and uh, I taught anatomy and physiology. And on weekends, I would take the train from Ohio back to Pittsburgh to complete my dissertation work. And my son was born in Ohio, and um, I completed my dissertation and successfully defended and applied for a uh, fellowship, a National Science Foundation fellowship at MIT, and I was fortunate to uh, be successful in getting that. So my wife then and my son, Amon, who at the time was uh, oh, eight or nine months old, 
we had a 72, 74 Ventura, Pontiac Ventura, uh, gear shift on the wheel. And I um, rented a U-Haul. And so here we are traveling across the country from Ohio to Cambridge, Massachusetts with an uh, eight-month-old little boy towing a um, 1972-74 Ventura. Um, for people who have known me over the years, that's quite a feat for me. I'm not like a <laughs> heavy tool guy or a big trucker or you know any of that, you know. And um, but that's what I had to do. I mean, it was MIT. What I'm going to say? Well, you know, I don't, I don't know if I can get there. Right. But, so we got there, and um, so my instructor job allowed me to get insurance so I could have my baby. My postdoc uh, at MIT was just very. Uh, very rewarding. I couldn't believe that, A, they let me come. You know, I mean, West Palm Beach, come on, you know? Yeah. And, um, but I got a chance to study and work with folks whose papers I had read. Right. And, right. and that was just, that was Man. just amazing. And I made no money. I mean, I, I, I mean, you got a fellowship and you got uh, some kind of monthly stipend, but it was, you know, it was just, Barely enough to live on. It's like p- public radio dollars. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> MIT is the NPR <laughs> of research uh, universities, I guess. But and then after after I completed my um, my postdoctoral fellowship, I um, got an opportunity to work with Florida A and M University. They were trying to start a program in Miami, a doctoral program in pharmacy. And they needed someone to oversee the research of the senior students and help develop the uh, pharmacology lab at the VA Medical School, a VA Medical Center down in Miami, along with the University of Miami. So that was uh, my first job. I was an assistant professor then, so I got promoted, Mm -hmm. uh, made a little bit more money, and we bought a house in Miami. And I worked that job for several years. And... um, couple, three, four years. And uh, my second son was born in, um, in Miami, uh, Zach, and uh, benefits was not an issue then. I was really swimming in it then. It was, it was good. And then I got contacted by Florida Atlantic University. Were you still driving the Ventura by then? No, I had a um, Buick. I had a Buick, uh, not Le Sabre, it was a smaller one. Anyway, it was a Buick. It was a really nice car. Bought it brand new, and so so um, and, and and the university paid for moving expenses. So that was something new to me. Hmm. But then I uh, got a call from Florida Atlantic University. And they needed uh, uh, someone to come in uh, to be an assistant dean and oversee the graduate program. So assistant overseeing the graduate programs, and I took that job on the uh, with the agreement that I would continue to have my laboratory because my research was continuing. And I had a grant, and they agreed to do that. And um, I, I don't mean this in any snobbish way, but I said I'm not going to teach undergraduate courses, so I didn't teach undergrad. I taught, I taught an honors course. That's but how right. old were you at that point in your? Oh career? my, I was probably relatively young. Yeah, yeah, twenty eight, twenty. I was. Yeah, I didn't know much. I just, <laughs> I just knew how to go to the lab and do the things like that. But. Um, so, so then I got that job, and um, they let me keep my lab and do my work. 
And then I got promoted to dean. I still, I kept my lab, but I had more graduate students now doing the work um, than me being in the lab every day, Mm -hmm. which was really also, um, it was also uh, a good setup for me for what I was doing. And uh, in 1995, I'm sorry, in 1990, they... uh, there was a job, uh, vice president for research and graduate studies at Georgia Southern University, and I decided to apply for that. And I had people saying, oh, I think you're not ready for that yet. You need to be a dean a little bit longer. And and um, then I had someone saying, you're ready. You're ready to do this. Do it. And uh, so I applied for that, and I got that position. So you were at Georgia Southern in 1991? Yes, I went to Georgia Southern in 1991 for a football game against University of Central Florida. Was that you? Uh, yeah, that was me. <laughs> I, uh, I drove up with my fraternity brothers. Yeah. Uh, and we went up in what, – what, what city is it in? Statesboro. Statesboro. I was going to say Jonesboro, yeah. but I knew that wasn't right. Yeah. yeah. So I spent a weekend there with the – partying with the Teaks. Yeah, yeah. We had fraternity <laughs> role there. You know, Georgia Southern, when I got there, they were just transitioning from a college to a university. And part of that transition was to really uh, develop um, – their graduate programs and the research, and that's what I was brought in to do. And one interesting aspect of that, there were two other colleges involved, Armstrong State and um, Savannah State. The latter is a historically black school. And my task was to take their graduate programs and put them under the Georgia Southern umbrella. So I wasn't loved in Savannah at all. I understood. But but, uh, that was part of me coming there, and that was part of my uh, task in going there. Huh. Um, well, let's get to your second song. Okay. We'll get back uh, to that, okay. that, that arc, yeah. arc to Dunk City. <laughs> uh, um, my second song is a Sam Cooke song. We mentioned Sam Cooke before. Is uh, was Wonderful World. And um, when I was in ninth grade at uh, Central Junior High School, that was my first year going to an integrated school. Uh, integration was just taking off in Palm Beach County. And at the time, it wasn't forced. It was freedom of choice, which meant my mama chose where right. I would go. And so I went there, and it was very, very stressful uh, every day, and just being in that environment where there are no other African Americans. I mean, there were other African Americans on campus, but they weren't in my class. There were maybe five to ten total in the school. So I went home with headaches and um and it resulted in me not passing my biology course. Hmm. I failed it. And that required me to go to summer school to take the biology course and pass it if I wanted to go on to 10th grade. So I did go to summer school and I passed the course. But uh, Sam Cooke had a song out around that time and it was called Wonderful World. Well, the first line in Wonderful World is, don't know much about history, don't know much biology. Well, my loving brothers and sisters uh, took that up (laughs) as an anthem for the summer, and they taunted me with that the entire Well, you were going off to summer school. Right. (laughs) And I would hear, and literally every day I would hear some version of that song from one or more of my siblings. Uh, when you hear it now, does it make you regret failing biology? No, no, or it just no. takes you back it to that time. It just takes me back to that time. Hmm. And uh, 
I showed biology who was boss. I mean, I have a PhD in psychobiology, you know. So, so, so who's the winner? <laughs> it's like they incepted you. Yes, like they put yes, the yes, yeah. Now you talked about this song with your siblings yeah, oh, over yeah. the year. This yeah, is oh, part yeah. of like oh, a yeah. running uh, Bradshaw oh, family but, joke. Oh, they would remember it. When, uh, oh, they remember. We all remember the whole thing. Let's listen to it through that lens. This is uh, Sam Cooke's Wonderful World, uh, released as a single in 1960 with Along the Navajo Trail as its B-side. Yeah, I could see my brother's face and my sister's faces. They didn't try to sing it uh, with uh, any type of style. It was all about jeering me about it. And um, it's uh, heartwarming. Um, do you and Joanna, your wife's musical tastes, align? Um, I think she's more current, more modern okay. than than I am. Um, you know, we'd be uh, riding in the car or something, and she starts singing a song. I say, how do you know that song? You know, you don't know it, what I do when you're not around, Brad. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so um, she probably knows more of the '80s, '90s stuff. And I'm just stuck in the 60s and 70s, really. And so the newer things uh, I'm not very familiar with. My Both my sons, they are big hip-hop guys, big hip-hop guys. And um, I may know some of the names, but I'm not really, um, I'm not really up on all of that. So I'm sort of stuck in the 60s and 70s. When your sons were coming up, did they bring home any music at any point that made you go, uh-uh? Oh, yeah. What do you mean when growing up? And they bring home some now. <laughs> but, oh, yeah, 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 yeah I, couldn't, you know, I couldn't believe what was you know, being out there. Even when I put on a hip-hop station now, by mistake. But, uh, <laughs> you know, what I hear is just, uh, whoa, you know, that's uh, – you know, I, when – when I listen to the Temptations of Four Tops or all like that, they're talking about love and, you know, uh, you know, I never want to leave you. Now, phew, you got to back something up and you have to, I mean, it's, <laughs> I don't know where, where it's all coming from. But that's, you know, that's generational. You, you know, it's it's generational. But, um, <laughs> yeah, jo- uh, Joanna, is, uh, she's a bit more contemporary than I am. Uh, is there anywhere you've observed your music taste rubbing off on them? Uh, oh, yeah, especially uh, my youngest son, Zach. Uh, and I'm always kind of surprised because I'll have on Motown when they're in the car. When I, Zach lives in Oakland, Amon lives in Atlanta. And I'll have on my Motown music. And they will recall me playing that mm-hmm. when they were growing up. And so uh, when I visited Zach the last time, he, had, uh, he has vinyl. He has a collection of vinyl. And he, has, he puts on... Some of my Motown stuff, something more recent, Tower of Power. And I said, whoa, where'd you get that? He said, Dad used to play this stuff all the time. And uh, the lesson there is that your kids are always listening and learning. Mm-hmm. And what they learn, you don't have to teach them. Mm-hmm. You know, they're learning all kinds of things. Absolutely. So that's kind of reinforcing to hear them kind of remember that. And everything old is new again. Yes. <laughs> it makes me happy that my daughter is driving now, and I, I think I'm a good driver. Like, I'm a very conscientious, very thoughtful, very attentive driver, and that's what I see in her. And I'm like, yes. Yeah. I didn't teach her that. She just grew up next to it. Right. 
Right. If I do say so myself. I think some of the most important lessons uh, our children learn and that we learn uh, that gets us through life and helps us uh, negotiate uh, complex relationships and things, uh, they're not learned in the classroom, and they're not usually taught to us. We learn them by being in situations and observing. Is being on a college campus one of those situations? Because you've spent an awful lot of time teaching kids on college campuses. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I, sometimes I'm asking, well, do you like college? I say, are you kidding? I never left. You know, and when um, – Especially at more traditional colleges like Florida Gulf Coast University, I mean, the fall term, it's so rejuvenating. You know, you come back on campus and the little darlings are coming back and they're moving in the dorms. And and, and it's just, uh, for me, that has been uh, one of the bright spots of my uh, academic years, that fall, that fall term. And um, it's just amazing how much that means to me and how much it means to, to faculty members. It, it's, uh, it's recharging. And uh, I've had a very rich and very rewarding career. I've been very fortunate. Um, how did the FGCU job come across your radar? Because at that point, you had been president in Minnesota mm-hmm. for like a decade. Uh, seven years. Yeah. Okay, seven years. So how did FGCU burble up? Well, it burbled up uh, even before then uh, when um, – they were advertising for Dr. McTarnigan's replacement. Okay. Uh, at the time, I was a provost in Pennsylvania at Bloomsburg University. I was a provost there for five years, and uh, from '95 to 2000. And I saw this job. I said, "This can't be true." You mean I really w- could end up back in Florida, my home state? And I knew all of the names. I knew Roy McTarnigan when I was just a nothing. You know, I was an assistant dean, and Roy was structuring the entire university system. And uh, I'm sure, and we've talked about this a lot, but um, I couldn't believe that would be an opportunity for me to do that. First, <clears throat> everyone wants to come to Florida, yeah. And these presidencies at the time it was not high turnover. <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean? yeah. yeah, you kind of get here. You say, "Well, this is where I want to be." But um, I looked at that job, and I knew that. That year was going to be my year for looking seriously at presidencies. I didn't cast a wide net, but I applied for two or three positions, and this was one I thought about. And as I looked at the other opportunities, I thought that what FGCU needed then was not me. Right. They didn't need a rookie president. (laughs) I just – because I knew where they were. I saw how fast they were going in all of this that probably, not probably, took more wisdom than I thought I was able to bring to the table at the time. So instead, I applied for um, a position at uh, Salisbury State and at Metropolitan State, and I interviewed at both. Interesting side note, Salisbury State is where... um, that the stakes come from? That's a very unfortunate, <laughs> that's an unfortunate name for a school, Salisbury State. I know, I know. Salisbury, Co- Salisbury College, Salisbury University. Well, at the time, they were Salisbury State. And, of course, just, there's no joke that they haven't heard. I mean, it's just. But, <laughs> not about that. But now it's Salisbury University. And, it's got um, a nice ring to it. So I interviewed there. Joanna and I went there, and we had the big, we were finalists there. And... Um, 
Bill Merwin was the president there before coming really? here. And ah. he was who ended up taking the this other job. job. He wow. took this job. So you, like, followed him around. Well, I, 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 interviewed, <laughs> I interviewed at uh, Salisbury. And, oh, right, right. That wasn't Right. And my, my chancellor in Pennsylvania called me up. He said, I just talked to the chancellor there. I think you got the position. So I was pretty excited about it. Um, well, it turned out that they made an offer to someone else. But I got an offer from Metropolitan State. And that was a surprise because I thought I was a better fit for Salisbury State. It was a uh, traditional university. That's where I'd been, had come from, and, you know, I knew. Uh, Metropolitan State, on the other hand, was an urban, you know, serving a, primarily an adult, place-bound population, no athletics. I said, that, why would they want me? Well, they were smarter than I was, hmm. and they made me an offer, so I was there. For seven years, but it was interesting that I would interview uh, for the position that Bill Merwin left to come here for. So we always had a little chuckle uh, about that. What were your first impressions of FGCU when you first got here on campus for the first time? Well, I would tell you when <laughs> oh, my Joanna and I we drove on campus. We were visiting on the Fourth of July that year. I was uh, thinking about following through. We were visiting our relatives over in Coral Springs. And said, hey, let's that's go. where I'm from. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I said, let's go take a look. Well, we drove onto campus, and when we turned onto campus, you could see all the way through, no buildings on that side. There was... Uh, were there any pigs running around? And there were no <laughs> pigs. There was no... Uh, I mean, I could see to the other end of campus. Yeah. Ludgard Hall wasn't here. Mm-hmm. Not, I mean, none of that. And Joanna looked at me and said, hmm, you know. So we drove around. We liked the environment here. And we saw, well, they have residence halls. And they're talking about growth and expanding. And I said to her, and we talked about it, that I, what they were planning to do in coming years was not being done anywhere else in the country. Nobody was building a new state university and like almost growing it from nothing uh, Roy and Bill had done exceptional work in the amount of time because when I was hired, it was on the 10th anniversary. They pointed me on the 10th anniversary of the university. So the university was just finding its way. Um, and I said, yeah, I'm going to take the next step. So I took the next step, talked to the search consultant, uh, made the first cut, and then the next cut, and they said, you need to come down and uh, be prepared to stay for seven days because they make the decisions. And once you were cut, you were gone, and you just had to, to stay because of the open records law. They didn't want things mm-hmm. leaking out so fast. And um, when I came for the first round of interviews, prepared to stay, Joanna wasn't uh, as sure as maybe I was that this could pan out. Uh, she just wasn't as optimistic as I was. So I came down, and I made the first cut, and she was down here within a day <laughs> of that, and we went through the next cut, and I mean it's all history uh, from from there. You know, I'm going to go back to something at uh, at uh, both uh, Pitt and MIT real quick. Pitt, where I got my PhD, sure. Where the um, chair of my dissertation committee, and he was my major professor. His name is uh, Tony Kajula. Tony lives in Naples now. Hmm. So I had an opportunity to invite him while I was still present here 
to campus and invite him up to the president's suite to watch a basketball game. And he was just, um, he was just so proud. I, I, I guess I expected something, but I didn't expect it to be, I didn't expect that I would feel that much hmm. emotion. And the guy whose lab I worked in at MIT, um, Michael, um, oh my, I'll call his name in a second. But uh, he was giving a talk at a conference in Bonita Springs. And we did similar kind of work on hormones and behavior. And um, he got in touch with me and said, I'll be presenting this paper. Um, can we have lunch? I said, yeah, why don't you come on up to the office? And he, too, kind of just sat there. I was always in awe of these guys. Yeah. And he just kind of sat there and said, look what, you, what, what, you, what you've done. And he said, uh, this is a this is amazing, and so it was quite gratifying for me to be president of Florida Gulf Coast University and have at least two very important guys in my research uh, academic life come and see the result of a lot of input that they had uh, for me, and uh, that was a really gratifying to, to be able to do that. Hmm. Do you have any musical memories associated with Florida Gulf Coast University? <laughs> You know what uh, jumps right into mind, and I'm going to just say that is the um, that the beginning of the uh, Dunk City song. I forget the name uh, of the guy of the rapper who did it, but there was a whole video. It was out within minutes. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it yeah, uh, all happened really fast. It re- happened like, very, very fast. I, I, one of my pictures on my my I think my first smartphone was. Uh, somebody's um, license plate that said Dunk City right out here in the garage. Yeah, yeah. That was like the first month. And I was like, who who went and got a plate done? I know that guy. He was in IT. Because I showed him. I said, look at my plate. I had like uh, one FGCU. Uh, he said, look at my plate. <laughs> and he had Dunk City. <laughs> and by the way, the guy at uh, MIT, the guy whose lab I, lab I worked in was uh, uh, Michael Baum, B-A-U-M. And um, he really... Uh, kind of shaped my sort of theoretical framework for how do I see uh, hormones interacting with neurotransmitters and mediating mostly masculine sexual behavior and all that. And for him to be able to come and sit in the my conference room and have just a lunch with Lenin in China was, <laughs> was just great. What was it like? I mean, you'd been in schools with athletic programs before, but that was sort of this really interesting little moment, you yeah. know, that the whole nation was aware of. Yeah. What was that like to be president during that? It was quite, quite a moment. I uh, Last evening, we inducted the Dunk City team into the um, Athletic Hall of Fame. And tonight, uh, we will be playing USC, whose coach is Andy Enfield, who was our coach when we went to the Sweet 16. But it was amazing, the energy in South Florida, at least initially South Florida. We were getting on a plane. We, Joanne and I flew up with the team to Philadelphia. Uh, the students had a couple of buses, one unauthorized. Um, <laughs> and we had, we had fans, and none of us could believe this was happening. And we went to Philadelphia and we were going to play Georgetown, and everybody said, "Oh, that's good, you know, play Georgetown, we'll get on the plane after the game, and we'll come home. 
But I packed enough stuff to stay for two games. <laughs> Apparently, I was the only one in the whole group who did that. But when we beat Georgetown, um, we had to pay play two days later. And, and it was nuts. I was getting text messages and emails from all over the country, people I had gone to school with. And it was just crazy. And the Dunk City thing, no one really knows where it really started. Um, but it has a lot of parents, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. to say. And it was uh, the institution was excited. Um, we had didn't have enough apparel. If we could have sold the, uh, we could have sold the shelves in the bookstore if they weren't bolted down. Hmm. And we did, hadn't licensed a lot of stuff, and so we were we were just totally newbies. But it was so exciting and so thrilling. And when we came back from Philadelphia, because there was a week between Philadelphia and Texas, Arlington, um, when, I, when I came back, well, at least for a week or more, didn't have to pay for dinner <laughs> anywhere we went. It was just, it was just amazing. And uh, to have police escorts when, wherever we went, we were in Philadelphia and Arlington, it was just all great. People were walking to us up to us on the streets, wanting to buy the shirts off our backs. Because no, we, we were the first team to kind of do this thing. You were, uh, just to, for the listeners who aren't aware of what, you were the 15 seed, but you made it to the Sweet 16, right. which is unprecedented. That we were the first team in NCAA history to ever do it. And no one can take that away And to do us. it in such a kind of spectacular, oh, exciting fashion, yeah. too. And to see all those guys back last evening... And, I mean, they still have the fun and the energy. It was, um, it, it was great. And then when we got back here to um, southwest Florida, every town was Dunk City. Bonita Springs was Dunk City. Uh, we got uh, uh, declarations from all over the place, uh, every nook and cranny of southwest Florida. They all... They were all on board, and they were all just super, super fans, and they remain super fans. Did you ever put together like a committee to determine how much value that had in terms of exposure for the university? Because it seems like like to get that much exposure, you'd have to spend $50 million or something. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if our advancement unit hasn't done something like that. At the time, <laughs> I had just hired uh, Chris Seminole as our new VP for advancement. He still lived in Boston. And I called him and I said, you got to get to Philadelphia because we don't know what to do with this. You know, we weren't able to, we couldn't take uh, big donations or with credit cards. We have, we have any infrastructure set up for that. And Chris, he stepped in like a trooper and uh, he got the troops working and uh, he just kind of guided us through the, the PR part and the advancement part. Um, now we're ready. So I hope the team is listening. Let's go to Sweet 16, the Elite 8, further. But we have the infrastructure to handle that. And I was just in the bookstore earlier today. We have all the apparel anyone will have. <laughs> um, okay, it's time for your third song. Okay, it's um, Four Tops, as I recall. Yep. And um, Joanna and I have been married 29 years. And when uh, I was courting her, I was commuting from... Miami to Boca Raton, to Florida Atlantic as an assistant dean and then a dean. And she was commuting from Fort Lauderdale to a bank up here. She was a vice president. And that's where we met. 
And that's when uh, we... You met at the bank? No, we met on the... I'm sorry. We met on the commuter train, the tri-rail. Gotcha. Oh, understood. Right, the tri-rail. And it just started. In fact, the first run of the tri-rail, I was on it. And one of the local television stations did like a piece of me doing writing that for the first time. But that we were riding the tri-rail, and that's where we met. And um, I remember shaving one morning, and the Four Tops came on singing Baby, I Need Your Lovin'. And that was an easy, an easy transformation for me to Baby, I Need Joe Lovin', J-O. <laughs> and, a wordsmith. Yes, 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 yes. You know, I have a PhD, you know. <laughs> but uh, so, so that was it, and that sort of became our song. So when we hear that, we probably have the same... Thoughts of variations of the same thought. You guys dance together? Yo, we, we've danced to that before. Yeah? Yeah, more than once or twice. Well, let's listen to it thinking of that. This is Baby I Need Your Lovin' by The Four Tops off their 1964 self-titled album. Wow. <laughs> That's great. You were off in La La Land. Oh, man. <laughs> you know, um, we've really had good opportunities and I said to her, and I've said in public before that, you don't know how much you're supported until you're not. And um, the support that I got from, uh, I've gotten from Joanna over the years, some of the things that I had to work through, not only at FGCU, but at other places, um, I, I didn't have, I didn't have to think about it. The support being there, it was there, and sometimes I don't know if you you, you kind of like maybe take it for granted. I, that may not be the right phrase, but you know it's like you know it's there, and it may not be conscious all the time. But um, she's helped me work through so many things uh, that were work related, and I'll tell you, it's not you know it, it's not all. Uh, Cake and ice cream. Presidenting, you mean? Yeah, and and first ladying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's uh, not a not a piece of cake. It takes uh, it takes a lot to um, to get through some of those things. And um, she was just always there, and I think smart, smarter than I am, uh, able to help me see things. That I didn't see, because I'm, I'm not a very complicated guy, you know, and and um, uh, sometimes I may miss some complexities of interactions that um, that she doesn't miss, hmm. and that have been helpful uh, for me. But whew, that's a great song. Would that and, song have played at your wedding? No, we didn't play that at my wedding. No, um, no, I'm trying to think what we played. It's obviously under something unremarkable, <laughs> but you, you know, no, and that yeah, that's just ours. Huh. You know what I mean? It's just, it's just ours. Does she ever call you Wilson? No. <laughs> Does anyone? Um, no, <laughs> no. I've been called, and some I, I mentioned earlier in the program that with a name like Wilson Gilmore Bradshaw. There are many opportunities for nicknames. Um, some people have tried Willie. I put a stop to that right away. <laughs> okay. Gil, I couldn't stop that. That was my family. That's 
Um, that was the fish's name in um, What About Bob? Yeah. Anyway. I mean, it's, and, it's a fish, right? And, um, <laughs> and so when Brad rolled around, that's what sixth and seventh graders do. You know, they, and I said, hey, that I can live with. Uh, Wilson always sounded much too formal. And so I was never really called that. I'm thinking back in grade school, um, it was probably always, almost always Bradshaw. Yeah, because you can, you know, Wilson, yeah, you can't put enough emphasis on that. But Bradshaw, you know, untie that boy from that tree and get him. Tom Hanks put some pretty strong emphasis yeah, on Wilson yeah, in that yeah, movie. Yeah, he did. He did. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I predated him <laughs> in that movie. <laughs> um, okay, I'm going to speed round you here because we're we're heading in for a landing. Okay. Um, best concert experience of your life? Um, best concert: Tina Turner. Joanna, I saw her in Minnesota years ago. She was hot. She was and such a show person. You know that was. That was great. Uh, uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire. Great concert. Great music. Um, I was dancing so much, a person in front of me told me I, uh, uh, on the aisle, said, you, you have to sit. No, she asked my brother-in-law to tell me that I was in the way. <laughs> I was lost in the music. So that was a couple. Um, do you guys do uh, musicals, like Broadway, stage? Oh, we, uh, we saw Motown the Musical in, on Broadway. We saw um, what's the big hit one now? That's Hamilton. Hamilton. We saw that on Broadway. So mm. uh, uh, we've seen some other plays. Uh, Joanna's favorite city is New York City, and um, if we could afford it, that's where we would be living. But as I've always said, since working at FTCU, I'm a state employee. You know, there are limits on <laughs> what you can make. Karaoke. Uh, don't do it. Ever? Ever. Do you have any TV-themed songs committed to memory that you'll sing with us? Um, you know what? If you would permit me, you know what I have in my mind? And it's haunted me for probably 30 years. And it is the opening monologue of the Superman program. Faster than a speeding bullet. Yeah. Can you do it a cappella? <laughs> I can do that by myself with, with no music. How Let's about hear it. that? Let's hear it. Bring it. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. Yes, it's Superman. Strange visitor from another planet who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Superman, who can change the course of mighty rivers, bend steel with his bare hands, and who, disguised as Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, fights a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way. Word for word, perfect. Yeah, good job. (laughs) <laughs> that was better than eating bread with you. <laughs> you see, see, I don't have much to occupy my mind, you know. That was fantastic. Um, okay, if you were a championship wrestler, what music would you come in on? Eye of the Tiger. Okay. That's one of Joanna's favorite kind of 
pumped up music. She was very athletic uh, in her younger years and did a lot of biking and stuff. And I, the Tigers, her kind of music, pump up music. Are you going to be her as a championship wrestler? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, okay, if you were a cocktail or drink of some kind, what what would it be? Uh, martini. Uh, anything special about it that you'd like to personalize it and make it a, a, a gill? Uh, <laughs> nothing really special. I like it very dry with a twist of lemon. And, Vodka martini? Oh, no, Jen. Jen I'm sorry. Okay. Jen. And it's, it's always... Uh, well, Shaking, it gets the job done, stirred. and it you look sophisticated. It gets the job done, that's yeah. for sure. If you could broadcast a song into the heads of every person simultaneously on the whole planet, which would you choose? You know, I would choose um, Louis Armstrong, Wonderful World. Good answer. Best album of all time, in your opinion? Stevie Wonder, Intervision. Um, what would your 14-year-old self think of who you are? In the world today. Are you kidding me? That's what my 14-year-old self would look and say, are you kidding me? Mostly out of, um, not out of ridicule, but out of awe, out of uh, surprise and, uh, and admiration. Would the budding scientist in you wonder why you wound up in, you know, presidenting and administration at universities? Not when I look back on it, no, no. But as I was going through it, it was something I never aspired to be. In fact, I never aspired to go into administration. Uh, I mean, that wasn't what I went to college for or PhD. I mean, that was not where I was thinking my career would be going. Any advice you'd like to give your 14-year-old self? You don't write the script all the time, but you always have to play it out. It's time for you to recommend your three people. One person would be uh, Jay Webb. Jay Webb now uh, coordinates uh, uh, outreach programs for the university, but he was one of the founding uh, athletic coaches for both men and women's tennis and had a long run here in that position. Now we have separate men and women coaches, and Jay Webb is still serving the university uh, with his outreach programs. And those who know him knows that he's a very outgoing, social kind of person. I think he's been on my list. I think <laughs> Some, I somebody think CJ, else. CJ McFarlane recommended him. Jay Webb. Yeah. Uh, um, Robbie, uh, a trustee, Robbie Repsdorf. Repsdorf. Robbie Repsdorf. Robbie Repsdorf. Yep. Right. Robbie is uh, she's chair of, uh, or past chair of the Board of Trustees, long term Board of Trustee member at uh, Florida Gulf Coast University an unwavering and aggressive in the positive way advocate for FGCU and really the driving force behind the rec center. Uh, she uh, went to Tallahassee with me just year after year. We were trying to get funding for this. And when we finally brought it all together, um, Robbie is should be recognized as someone who was pivotal in us getting that. So... And she's a bank president. She's very accomplished. She's a, she's a community person. She is of Southwest Florida. The last person I would uh, recommend is Ken Cavanaugh, athletic director. I had the opportunity to say some things last evening about the team and my time here as the university. And when I got here, Carl McAloos, who did a tremendous job as the original AD here, um, he left soon after I got here, and we hired Ken. And Ken taught FGCU 
how to be a Division I athletic program. Play by the books and by the rules. And one thing I've said in speeches before, seldom do you hear the words, these words put together, pristine athletic college program. And you can say that about FGCU. And I think uh, Ken Cavanaugh and the people that he's hired, uh, they're responsible for that being the character of our athletic program. Have a lot to, uh, to be proud about. Okay. Well, put this in front of them. We would love to have all three of them at okay. some point in the future. Okay. Um, do you re- remember the, or do you, do you know the WGCU pledge number off the top of your head? <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking it might be in there somewhere. It, it might be back there somewhere, but I'm... 1-800-533-9428. Right. Well, you know, usually when I give that number, it's right there in front of me, you know, and I, and I can read it, you know. But I do, I do remember that, uh, that uh, it's you who put the U in WGCU. Absolutely. Okay, uh, Brad, thank you so much for doing this. Hey, Any final thoughts you'd fun. like to leave us with? It was fun. Um, the two, th- uh, four words, and I've ended all of my commencement addresses with this. Walk good, go Eagles. Please up. We make three song stories in the studios of WGCU Public Radio on the campus of Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. Richard Chinqui is co-creator and producer. Tara Calligan is online content producer and host. Chris Duffus is executive producer. And our theme song was created by Dave 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 Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete. For this week's parting tune, we're going back a year to episode 144 with visual storyteller Kenfei Marodi. His third song brought him back to the morning of April 5th, 1985. He had recently discovered that his mechanic friend Chris, who he thought was super cool and who he admired a whole lot, had been listening to popular music of the day created by white artists, which at that time and place in the world made him an outlier among their friends and associates. Chris told Ken Fay that a song featuring almost 50 artists from diverse musical backgrounds was going to be simultaneously broadcast on more than 8,000 radio stations around the world and that they were going to listen to it together with the gang in his auto shop where everyone hung out. Ken Fay says that moment in that garage with that song literally changed his life. I remember Chris going over to the radio in the shop which is like the Holy Grail, mm-hmm. okay? <laughs> Turning off like the OJs, which are like music gods uh-huh. <laughs> in the African-American community, and turning on WLS in time mm-hmm. to catch We Are the World being played. And the shop was crazy. They were giving Chris the business. They were like, Chris, cut that off. And he was like, no, we're going to listen to this. I'm the best mechanic in this shop. I don't care if y'all think alike. I want to listen to this station. I'm listening to this station. And then some guy was like stupid enough to try to make a beeline to the radio. And Chris standing there with the torch in his hand, he kind of (laughs) like pumps the torch twice and gives him this, I dare you touch that radio look on his face, right? And it plays. Not to get overly serious here, but it was like that scene from Shawshank Redemption when the prisoners are on top of the roof and, oh, and, yeah. they, and, yeah, and, they, yeah. and they've got that beer. And just for a moment, <laughs> all of the confines that they had been living in were gone. And as I heard that song, that's when I stopped being someone who lived their life through race. My race was no longer my introduction to the world. 
Chris's insistence that you like what you like, regardless of what environment you're in, and the fact that someone like Stevie Wonder was co-signing Bruce Springsteen, right? And Diana Ross was co-signing Bob Dylan. You know what I mean? If Stevie Wonder thinks it's cool to hang with Bruce Springsteen, then maybe I should give, you know, Bruce Springsteen a shot. And so what happened was my mind just went completely open. Keep listening. Next time on Three Song Stories. I told myself I wasn't going to say this on NPR radio, but you know what I'm saying? I'm trying. I would like to keep it clean.